A.M. Howell, or as her friends and family know her, Anne-Marie, is the author of a series of mystery books set in the early part of the 20th century. Her book, The House of 100 Clocks, won the Malpete Children's Award and the East Anglian Book of the Year in 2020. Her third book, The Mystery of the Night Watchers, is just about to be published. Nikki Gamble caught up with Anne-Marie and asked her to set up the story for us. Yes, so Mystery of the Night Watchers is about a 12-year-old girl called Nancy and she's taken to stay with a grandfather who she didn't even know existed. And he lives in a very small town in Suffolk called Bury St Edmunds, which is actually where I live today. And her mother takes her there on a very normal school day with her little sister and they don't know they're going there. And they go on the train and they arrive in this very mysterious town. And when they arrive, they learn he owns an apothecary shop. And an apothecary shop is like a type of chemist shop. And um, they arrive to find that the curtains must be closed. They mustn't go to the windows. They mustn't leave the house. And they're told that the reason for their visit is because their grandfather wants to watch Halley's Comet, which is passing very close to the Earth. You can see it with the naked eye as well as with a telescope. And on the top of his lovely house, which is called Cupola House, which is based on a real house in Bury St Edmunds, there is a cupola, which is a type of small observatory with windows that go all the way around it. And the grandfather has a telescope up there and he tells them he needs help because he's sick to get up the stairs to watch the comet. But Nancy very soon realises that that's not the reason why they've gone at all. Their grandfather isn't sick, but he is going up to the cupola to watch something, but it's not the comet. And when her mother and grandfather start leaving the house at night with very mysterious packages, Nancy realises something very strange is going on. And that's when the mystery really gathers pace and starts to develop. That's uh, really piqued uh, my interest. and I'm sure it piqued the interest of people who are listening. Uh, We're going to get to the mystery. But first of all, I want to start with this amazing happening in 1910. It happens roughly every 70 years or so. And that's the appearance of Halley's Comet. And 1910 was particularly spectacular for a number of reasons. So how did you get into being interested in this phenomenon? Um, I've always been interested in astronomy. So I really love watching TV programs by Brian Cox. I can still remember the first TV series he did on the planets and being really captivated by that. And we've got a telescope at home that we use occasionally. And when I was thinking of a theme for my next book, I thought it'd be really good to find some astronomical event to write about. So I started to look at articles and I read one about Halley's Comet in 1910. And this passing of the comet was particularly unusual because advances had been made in science that made scientists aware there was a gas in the comet's tail. And they were using this thing called spectral analysis where they could see light passing through the comet. And that's how they worked this out. So it was still a very new thing. And so some people got very scared about this. They said, well, the gas could potentially poison people living on the Earth. And of course, the newspapers got hold of that fact. And they really blew it up into quite sensational headlines saying, Um, The comet could snuff out all life on Earth, these very, very dramatic headlines, which caused a little bit of panic amongst some people. And people went out and bought gas masks. Uh, Some people made anti-comet pills to make some quick money. And in fact, they were just made of sugar paste. They were absolutely worthless, which was incredible. And they were told to seal up their doors and windows to stop the gas creeping in. And this whole thing just really captured my imagination that people could have been so afraid of this event that actually happened every 75 to 76 years as Edmund Halley, 
who discovered the orbit of the comet and the fact it returned had demonstrated quite a few years before that. Mm. And so I thought that'd be a really, really interesting theme um, to write about um, in the story. And the idea just developed from there. Mm. So it really was the starting point. Um, I suppose another thing that was really interesting about the 1910, I think it was a particularly good showing of the comet. I mean, I've lived through a Halley's Comet experience in the 1980s. And it was a bit of a damp squib, to be honest. But I think 1910 actually was a good showing of the comet. I found some amazing photographs online, literally the first photograph of Halley's Comet that had ever been taken. And people were watching it just from their windows and looking at through their naked eye, seeing the comet there. They didn't need a telescope or binoculars. And so I think it just would have been an extraordinary thing to look mm-hmm. at. I'd, I'd love to have been there to see it. Mm-hmm. It must have been amazing. Mm-hmm. The other thing that was so spectacular, um, Earth actually passed through the tail of the comet, didn't it? Or the tail. That's why people were so worried at that particular time, because the Earth was passing through the tail. Um, People thought that that was another reason why the gas um, was very, very close to the Earth, would come through the atmosphere and poison people. And of course, it, it was absolutely fine. The comet passed by without incident and many, many people celebrated the comet. I read about these amazing parties that took place on rooftops in New York, on top of hotels. People took boats out on the River Seine in Paris and had huge parties. Um, So a lot of people really celebrated it. And I think there were two definite camps. There were those scientists who said, nothing's going to happen, we know. And other scientists said, actually, no, we think there's a little bit of a worry. And people would choose either of those two camps to sit in, really. Mm. Uh, But I think from what I've read, people definitely celebrated it a lot more. I've definitely over-egged it a little bit in my book because that's fiction. And I don't think in Boris and Edmonds, there was a particular fear of the comet. I found no evidence of that, certainly. Mm. And, uh, And from what I've read, I think the fear was maybe a little bit greater on the other side of the Atlantic in America. It reminded me a little bit um, of millennium fever with people saying it was going to be the end of the world, not many maybe, and those that thought the world was going to be completely changed, whereas in actual fact, you know, it's just another day actually. (laughs) So, you know, that kind of way things get built into big stories by newspaper, but in a sense, there's more reason to be excited about a comet than just a random date that happens to be the year 2000. I think so yeah definitely and I think that's why I wanted also to celebrate it with a big comet party in the story which Mm. is the culmination of the story when Nance is trying to prove what's happened and and right the wrongs of the past and I thought it'd be lovely to end on a celebration. Well we are going to move on because although there's so much we could say about this it gives a good you know a, a sense of the the mood in the country at this particular time. You've written about this Edwardian period before. It's one of the things that comes across in terms of the setting of your books, a real sense of depth in your research. You know, I find as I found as I was reading it, and you're talking about hobble skirts, you know, I, I get a sense that you are fascinated with the fashion and in the apothecary you know, the idea that there's horse hair toothbrushes. Did people really clean their teeth with horse hair toothbrushes and use camphor toothpaste? You clearly know a lot about this period. So tell us a little bit about whether you enjoy that research and what sorts of sources you use. 
I really do enjoy the research. And that's one of the most fun things about writing historical fiction, I think. And I think I, I do a lot of reading online, but I also go to the library and borrow a lot of books. But one of my main things is just finding somebody um, online who's spoken about living in that time or had relatives living at that time and sort of hearing about it firsthand and reading firsthand accounts. I think that really helps put me back into that time period and also looking at photographs as well and paintings. That's really helped me with all three of my books and visiting the places as well. Of course, um, for The Garden of Lost Secrets, that was set in Ickworth Park, which is now a National Trust property. And the House of 100 Clocks was set in Cambridge. And I, I know those places quite well. And I walk the streets a lot of those places and I walk around them. And I really feel being there just really helps me feel the story from my way into it. And while I do some historical research at the beginning to get into the story, I find I often do the most after I've written the first draft because I find otherwise I'll get too bogged down with facts. And I like telling the story that I want to tell first and then going back and seeding in little historical details, not overloading the story, because I think that would be a bit preachy and a bit boring for children, mm -hmm. um, but just really trying to pull a few really interesting facts about the time out that make, might make people stop and go, wow, that's really interesting. I just didn't know that. The things that made me sit up and think, did people really use horsehair to brush their teeh? Mm -hmm. I found that quite horrifying, uh, but also very interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I was fascinated by the apothecary. I said this found myself asking, when did apothecaries become chemists? Actually, you refer to a chemist later in the book. So was this a period of change where people were sort of changing how they took their medicine? It really was, actually. And Boots the Chemist was starting up um, around that time. And I do refer to that. And um, I found that whole thing very, very fascinating, the fact that these old apothecary shops with their little drawers and, and cabinets that would hold lots of her herbal remedies, they're really starting to, to fade out and becoming the more modern chemist shop that we would know today. And in fact, the story is set um, in this apothecary shop. And I found out the Cupola House in Boris Edmonds, where the story is set, actually did belong to an apothecary and was built for an apothecary um, all those years ago, back in the 17th century, so in the 1600s. And he was a very prosperous man and clearly built himself a very nice shop to run his apothecary business from. Um, but all of that really just inspired me uh, yeah, to write the story and set set an apothecary mm. shop in the story mm. and of course you were able to go to your hometown of Bury St Edmunds I understand that the house that you were writing about is now a Japanese restaurant so did you get to go and have a look at it I close did. up I and what was did. that like yeah it was amazing one of the most thrilling days I'd started to write the story I'd had the idea of using Cupola House as the setting um, and then I contacted the restaurant and they very kindly said I could have a little tour and go up to the cupola which isn't actually open to people and so I wound my way up through the house and they showed me all of the other rooms as well which are amazing so I'd seen plans of the building so I roughly knew where I could set people's bedrooms where the kitchen would be things like that but then as we got up to the cupola you could see this light coming down the stairwell it's a very narrow staircase with gargoyles on the staircase so it's a little bit creepy going up you could imagine what it would be like at night and getting right up to the top it was a very small room you could only fit maybe three people in there at a push but it gave the most magnificent bird's eye view across the rooftops of Bury St Edmunds and you could see to the countryside beyond as well because it's quite a small market town mm. and I just had this sense of being on top of the world it was just incredible you could see into people's homes into other shops and businesses and I thought what what a way 
to, to start the story off, arriving at this house, having this telescope up in this amazing cupola and having the children try to solve a mystery from the mm-hmm. top of this very small little room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought it'd be perfect to build the atmosphere in the story, yes, by using it. But it was just an amazing place to go and visit. Mm-hmm. And I think the story really started to gather pace. Once I'd had the visit there, it really inspired me to, to carry on writing. One of the things that can be seen from the cupola in your story is the prison. Now, you say that you can't really see that in real life. No, no, you can't. I I had to move the prison for the purposes of (laughs) fiction. And if you look at the map at the front of the book that was beautifully designed, you can see the prison on the map. Um, But the prison in Bury St Edmunds is actually down another road that's far too far away to see from the cupola. But I did have to use a dollop of artistic license and move the prison a little bit closer for the purposes of my fictional story. Because after all, it is fictional. Nancy didn't really exist and none of this happens. I thought as long as I make that very clear at the beginning of the story and in the notes at the end, then hopefully the residents of Bury St Edmunds won't be too upset at that. I think they're going to be delighted. I don't think they're going to mind (laughs) that at all. Um, it'd be nice to get into the story a little bit, actually. And I wonder whether you might read for us. Yes, absolutely. I'd love to. So I'll do a short reading from um, chapter six of the book. And this is the day after Nancy has arrived at the house in Bury St Edmunds. And she's very concerned about why they're there. The mother is being very secretive. Um, She hasn't really given them any information at all. But Nancy wakes up and decides to go and talk to her mother about this. And this is the first time she starts to think that maybe things aren't quite as they seem at the house. The creak of the floorboards woke Nancy with a jolt. She sat up, glanced at the dim outline of Violet, watching the rise and fall of the blanket as she slept. A rim of light around the edges of the moth-ravaged curtains suggested it was early morning. Perhaps her mother was up and about already. The happenings of the previous day rushed into Nancy's head, almost knocking her breath away. While Violet was asleep, perhaps she could ask question her mother about the real purpose of their visit to Suffolk, for she found it very hard to believe it was solely to help their grandfather view the comet, especially as they weren't even allowed in the cupola. She wanted to know more about the odd instruction to stay inside the house too. This suggested their stay here was to be kept a secret. Why was that? The fact mother had kept their grandfather from them swirled and churned in the pit of Nancy's stomach. Mother could seek out small untruths from her and Violet like a bloodhound. Learning that she herself was capable of telling such a large lie made Nancy feel as if a rug had been pulled sharply from beneath her feet. Tiptoeing to the door, Nancy opened to it, the gentle creak of its ancient hinges causing her to pause and listen. Violet did not stir, but as Nancy crept from the room onto the wide plant-filled landing, she could hear the sound of whispered voices coming from above. It was her mother and grandfather. The curtains were closed on the landing, but the window was slightly ajar and the leaves of the potted herbs waved gently in the early morning gloom, their fragrance rofting under Nancy's nose as she walked the stairs and looked up. Were they still in the cupola watching the comet? It was unlikely at this hour, as it was not visible during the day. But the thought of what they might be seeing from the small rooftop observatory caused a pinch of curiosity that drew her up the stairs. The light spilling down the stairwell grew steadily brighter the eyes of another gnarly-faced gargoyle seeming to follow Nancy's progress as she wound her way ever upwards. She winced as the stairs moaned gently in time with her footsteps until she finally stepped out onto a small landing leading to some attic rooms. 
The ceiling was so low here she could reach up and graze it with her fingertips. She saw that a final, narrower and twisting staircase led towards the source of light coming down the stairs. This must be the way to the cupola. The voices she could hear were louder now and Nancy hovered at the foot of the stairs, her toes curled into the floorboards. I told you we would see nothing, she heard her grandfather say. We must send a message, said her mother. But I've tried doing just that and received no reply, said her grandfather, his voice low and anxious. Then I must try, said mother firmly. There must be a reason the messages are being ignored. There was a short silence and Nancy wondered what messages they were talking about. You are grey with exhaustion, father. Must you open the shop today, continued her mother. I must open up, for maybe today will be different and I shall have some customers, said her grandfather wearily. I cannot believe how bad things are. This has been going on for long enough, mother replied in a small, fierce voice. The light coming down the stairwell suddenly faded, as if a cloud had scudded across it. Nancy looked up, saw with alarm her mother's stockinged feet coming down the stairs. There was no time to run back to her bedroom, and even if she did, her mother would hear the creaks of the floorboards and know she had been lurking and listening to their private conversation. Glancing behind, Nancy saw that a door to one of the attic rooms was ajar. She ran over to it and slipped inside, her heart hammering so loudly she felt sure her mother and grandfather would be able to hear it as they passed. But their footsteps continued on down to the floor below. Leaning back against the wall, Nancy took in her new surroundings, her eyes widening as she realised that this was no ordinary attic room. Mm. Here we go, the end of chapter six. So very much like the Garden of Lost Secrets, this is a girl who knows that, that she's not being told the whole truth about her family. I mean, we're glad that there's secrets because there'd be no story, no mystery without them. But at its heart, there's an exploration of that as an idea. Um, grandfather says to her at one point um, that secrets aren't a bad thing. Protecting those we love from unsettling truth is not always a bad thing he says. But later in the story, Nancy's father, who's a solicitor and campaigns for people who sometimes have uh, misfortunes due to their circumstances, you know, he's got a social conscience, a moral compass, as he says. Later, he says that uh, telling the truth is the most important thing of all. And it seems that, that there's a tension between these two views of truth and lies uh, in your story. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's something I really wanted to explore in the book. This Children are often told things by adults and then find out later that maybe they weren't the full truth. And I think as a child, you're constantly questioning what your parents tell you. And sometimes you can sense when you're not being told the truth and you might push them a little to find out if they will tell you what that is. And I think Nancy has been given two different points of view here. Her father is very much, you must tell the truth really important you tell the truth because he defends people that are going to prison and the truth must always be upheld on the other hand her grandfather is saying actually a little lie can't hurt whereas we find in the book that actually lies can hurt and they can be very very painful indeed when they involve family and the moral is of course it's always better to tell the truth no matter how painful that truth may be and I think that's a really important lesson perhaps even though it's not really a lesson in the book not to be too preachy about it but it's something that I certainly feel quite strongly about that I was trying to tell my children the truth about things even if they're quite painful truths to tell um, because I think that's certainly 
makes things a lot easier in the long run. Mm, it is about the long run, isn't it? Because in the short in the short term, you may appear to be uh, protecting. I mean, they're both coming from a good place, the father and the grandfather, in wanting what's right for her. So um, uh, it's an interesting one for children to ponder on uh, and to reflect, I think, as they read the story. I think it is. I think also the grandfather comes to realise that from what learning from Nancy takes the, from her that it's not always a good reason to lie you know it's really important to tell the truth so they kind of learn lessons from each other which I think is quite nice mm, definitely we haven't talked about any villains yet uh, but there oh, is a villain think. in this story and he happens to be the mayor of very St Edmunds I'm presuming he's a completely fictional character <laughs> he is completely fictional has no bearing on any mayor for Bury St Edmunds living or deceased absolutely yeah totally fictional but I had a lot of fun writing him and um, I decided quite early on that this book wasn't going to be about who had done it it was going to be about why he had done it so you learn quite early on that the mayor is the bad guy in the story but there's a lot more to him than you originally think so Nancy has to uncover why he's so dastardly why he's treating people in the town so terribly um, and has to sort of right the wrongs of the past that way and she finds out that her family are mixed up in this in a really, really terrible way, and that very bad things have happened to her family that have been buried, very bad family secrets. Um, so she has to bring those to light in order to make things better and forge a better future for them all. I don't think I'm giving too much away by saying that Nancy has to learn something about herself. Something has happened because of her, and she has to face up to that. So that's quite unusual to um, put that, I think, in a children's book, but an interesting idea. And I liked the way that you dealt with it. I don't know if we can talk about that without giving the plot away. <laughs> I don't want to give too much away, really, because, uh, yeah, it's quite a major, major plot twist, I suppose, towards the end of the story. But Nancy is certainly more involved in the secrets of why they've come to this town in Suffolk than she could ever possibly imagine. And she has to face up to some quite uncomfortable truths about what happened um, when she was small um, and why her family had been so badly affected by the mayor. So, yeah, it was a really interesting sort of moral dilemma to write about. And it comes back to telling the truth again, why her family have hidden this, this truth from her to try and protect Nancy because they didn't want her to be concerned or worried. Um, but I think when Nancy discovers the truth, she actually realises that she has to come to terms with it herself. Mm. And I think that's another really interesting message I really wanted to write about is that if you do find out something that's a bit worrying, you can still come to terms with that mm. and actually move forward and move past that. There are a couple of sisters in the story. It's a, a pair of adult sisters, but the sisters perhaps we spend most time with are Nancy and her sister Violet. And I love the, you know, that she comes to understand, love, appreciate perhaps her younger sister more through this story. Uh, and there's a strong message here, if you like, as well, about a sister's love is like no other. Are you a sister? I'm not a sister. Not. No, I have a brother. But my mum has two sisters who she's very close to. And um, I grew up you know, knowing about their closeness and being absorbed into that closeness and saw their relationship. And I think I just found that really fascinating. And if I'm honest, 
I suppose I kind of would have loved to have had a sister. I love my brother very dearly. And so I always used to read books about um, sisters. So Little Women, for example, I was absolutely obsessed with reading that when I was young and the closeness of the sisters, but yet again, how different they all were. And so I've always wanted to write a book about sisters and this seemed to be the ideal story. And also, I suppose I took a little bit of my relationship with my brother and put that into the story. I used to find my brother a little bit irritating, as some siblings would do. Um, But then again, we were also great friends. And as we grew up, uh, particularly in our teens, we grew closer. We had similar interests. I kind of saw that maybe I was wrong to be irritated, you know, and we were actually the potential was there all along for us to be quite good friends. I think that's something that Nancy realises in the story as well. And hopefully it's something that quite a few children might be able to relate to. So, Anne-Marie, thank you so much today for talking to us about Mystery of the Night Watchers. I'm sure that lots of people are going to be intrigued by the mystery. We've been very good. We haven't given too much away, but hopefully we've piqued people's interest. So thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.